And it's about everybody feeling included in the community because we know that the most important factor in a student's well-being journey is the well-being of the parents. We cannot ignore that fact, but that is so important. So that's where I think schools have the opportunity to be a community of learning where they can provide learning, not just for the students, but for parents and for the teachers, for everybody to continue to learn and grow. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. You're in for a treat this week. I have the amazing Meg Durham on the show. Now, this beautiful soul is a well-being speaker, educator, and coach. She is known best for bringing out the best in others. She's an expert in the area of well-being education and well-being coaching. Meg has a unique skill set that she has developed from working in a variety of roles across metropolitan and regional Australia. She actually has a master's in education and student well-being. She also has certification in positive psychology and a Bachelor of Physical Education. Now, this beautiful soul is helping us to change the way the education system is working. And I'm sure all of you will appreciate that through COVID, the world has not only disrupted all of our own personal lives, but it has certainly disrupted um maybe even created an upheaval, uh, a change in the way that we learn. With so much online education now, the way we are discovering our children's ability to learn and what's required, you're going to love how she talks about all of these changes in not only our students, our children's lives, but also how it's affecting the home. What I also love about this podcast is we get an insight into how the education system works with leadership, with the teachers, with the students, and of course, the role that parents play. So if teaching and looking at your kids going through the education system, noticing what it's like to think about the idea of homeschooling, how COVID's affected, whether or not some teachers can indeed teach or if they've lost their jobs based on their health decisions, Oh my gosh, we go there in all ways in this podcast. So if you have children or grandchildren going through the education system, if you yourself are a teacher, if you are a parent considering homeschooling or are certainly someone who wants to support the education system and the changes that are and needing to be made, then I promise you, you're going to love this. And I think what's beautiful about Meg is she has such a passion to deliver complex well-being theories in such a way that it's easy to understand and implement. You're going to know how easy it is for you to create positive change within your beautiful family dynamics as well, so that we can raise a generation of extraordinary humans that are going to become well-evolved adults. So get ready. There's lots of beautiful information And she has some amazing programs and things to offer as well in either capacity as a student, a teacher, or a parent. So look forward to this, and I certainly look forward to your feedback. You can place your comments on my Instagram page, Kim Morrison28, my Facebook page, Kim Morrison, or thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. I look forward to hearing all about it 
your thoughts, your feelings, and certainly how this helps you to become an even better version of you. Take care, be kind. One of my favorite things to do of all times is to interview amazing people. And this week is no different. We have the gorgeous Meg Durham on our show, who is a, an amazing wellness and well-being speaker, an educator, a health and absolutely brilliant coach on all levels. She has many qualifications, as you've heard, but she also has a very special and unique delivery on all things well-being. So welcome to the Self Love Podcast, gorgeous. Oh, Kim, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such an honor to be here chatting with you today. Well, we've had some beautiful conversations over the years, and it has indeed been a privilege and honor to be on your show. But what I'd love to do, just for our listeners, so that they get an idea of who the amazing Meg is, perhaps you could give us a little bit of a story, a background, and what led you into this heart-centered work that you're doing now? I think for me, a lot of it started when I was younger. I'm the youngest of four, and being the youngest is such a good position. I often say out of all the jobs in my life, I would never want to give up being the youngest. It's quite divine being the golden child. And when I was younger, I spent a lot of time playing schools, like hours, days, years playing schools, and all I ever wanted to be was a teacher. That was it. There was no deviations to that plan. And then I went off and studied to be a teacher. And then after those four years, I thought I was ready. I was ready to take on the world. I'd watched the movies to serve with love and dangerous minds. I thought, this is it. This is my chance to educate the future. It was my first class. It was seven silver. I had prepared for weeks and weeks. Everything was ready. And I walked into that room on that very first day and I thought I'd made it. I am finally a teacher. I am living my dream, here we go. And here we go indeed. That first week, nothing can prepare you for that first week of teaching. The intensity of school life, the amount of issues that pop up that you've never experienced in your life before. And I really struggled in my first year of teaching because the job is just so big and we don't have preparation for the human element of teaching. We have preparation for all the content. I was trained to be a PE and science teacher, but I was not trained, Kim, to deal with the issues that arise in young people's lives, to deal with parents who are breaking and crying in front of you as they're going through separation and big transitions and colleagues who are dealing with their own things at home or sick parents. And it really got me curious that we're not talking about and we're not trained in the human side of life. And it's the human side of life that if we're not feeling well, if we're not functioning well, it's really hard to learn. It's really hard to be in relationship with other people. And so I started to think there has to be a better way. Surely there's skills, there's strategies, there's things that I could learn so I could teach the young people that I was working with. And so I went to study my master's in student well-being and that opened up my eyes to this whole world of research, of skills, of practices, so much that we can do to support ourselves to live well. And I got quite frustrated because I was thinking, why weren't we taught this in the four years that we were studying? There was no mention of relationships, of well-being. 
when I was training. And so after that master's program, I set out on an adventure to create programs, opportunities for young people and the people who support them, their parents, their teachers, to learn the skills of well-being. I think it's a really interesting thing you bring up here. So often we hear of authors, amazing, successful entrepreneurs, different people out there doing incredible things who said school was not the be all and end all. They either left before they graduated, they never finished. And it seems to be that many people, or should I say it the other way, that not many people always fit into the box of schooling. Do you think it's outdated? Do you think something needs to change in the education system? Or do you think it's a case of us all trying to learn skills outside of the system? I think that's a really interesting question, Kim. And I've noticed the same thing too. Some of the people that I look up to who are the most qualified people I know, when I sit down to chat with them, they said, Meg, I was a high school dropout. I didn't fit in at school. It just did not speak to me. And it got me so interesting to think, interested to think, wow, you are one of the most accomplished people I know and yet your school experience didn't really get you there. It was almost despite your school experience you've got to where you are. So I think school is an interesting place. It's a complex place. It's a layered place. And everybody's experience is so different because they're in different rooms, in different spaces. The way that I look at schools is kind of the way that I look at farms because I've spent lots of time living in rural Australia. And one thing that you come to learn when you live in rural Australia is they talk a lot about the soil and they talk a lot about the weather. And so I started to think that, well, if schools were like farms, the leadership are the weather The staff are the soil and our students have the opportunity to thrive or not, depending on the environment in which they're in. So there are some schools where the environment is just palpable. I walk into the reception, I walk into the staff room and think, this is a place that I would want to be. And there are other schools that I walk into the reception and I get this sense of, oh, am I in trouble? I'm in the wrong place. And then I walk into the staff room and there's no one there. And it's just not an environment for people to thrive. So every school is so different. Every classroom is so different. And yet, universally, I think we've got a lot of work to do in the wellbeing space because we're not here just about giving information. And the interesting thing about school systems is we've come from an origin where the teacher was a font of all knowledge. There was no internet. There was no Khan Academy. There was no YouTube. They had the information and students had to listen. It was very much a power over model. And if students didn't listen, there was a physical punishment. What the teacher said goes. And we have moved so far from that. And I think that we're struggling to find this place where we can honour the human that's in front of us, give them power, walk with them, have that shared learning experience and also getting the work done that needs to be done. So there's this tension between how schools were and where we're hoping to go. And I think we're getting there. And one of the silver linings of COVID is now the idea of well-being. It's gone from under the table in school systems to on the table 
Now it's a matter of what are we going to do with it? How are we going to move forward thinking about students and staff as humans, as whole humans that have life at school and out of school and how can we help them where they are to move to the next best step for them? think that a principal you know how many businesses they say it's it stinks from the the head down kind of thing it's like a fish it stinks from the head down is it the same at a school does the principal set the tone then for whether or not there's people in the staff room or whether or not it feels good at reception or the students are flourishing is it that simple that the leadership can guide this so well oh if it was only that simple in the sense that because we're in a system, every human within that system has an impact, creates a ripple effect. Now, so it's not to say that the people at the bottom can't have an effect and the people at the top don't, but it's about that everybody has a ripple effect and in the case of the school system, the principal's ripple effect is rather intense. I have worked at schools where a principal has worked for years and years to create something that is really, really special and then the leadership changes and it's just gone. It's eroded. And I have seen firsthand how much impact an incredible leader can have and then the flip side, how detrimental it can be to people if the leadership is not on point. And so when it comes to leadership in schools, we really need to have a balance of the head and the heart. So when you look at an executive team, because a lot of schools have got the principal that have an executive team, the schools that do the best in my world and the best I think is they're respecting the academic and the human so that it's not a binary, it's not just we're all about academic or all about well-being. It's bringing them both together because we know that when students are feeling well, they're going to perform much better. When an executive team has the balance of head and heart, the environment in which they can create is palpable. It's just remarkable. It's vibrant. There's energy. They're resilient. They're robust. And so the leadership makes a big big influence on that school system and that is led by the principal so the best principals that I have seen have the balance of head and heart they have a very strong vision for the school and they also allow the people on the executive do what they need to do without holding on too tightly do you think then it's, I mean, what I'm hearing from you, if, if the school system, if the education system of each country could hear just this conversation, it's almost, there's almost a, a community approach to this. I mean, our children's school, we had the most phenomenal principal at the high school. He had impacted in such a way. There was such respect, solidarity, teammanship. The students were happy. Everyone loved him. And then sadly, he got ill and had to retire. And over the next six years, I think we went through five principals. And my son really struggled on that. And he just did not, I'm not blaming it just on that. But for some reason, he just started to lose his connection to that school. Do you think then it's not just the teachers, it's not just the principal, it's not just the students, but then parents 
do you think there's a, a try, a, a stool approach to this where there's three legs, the, the students, the parents and the teachers, or do you think that they can still run quite separately? The best schools that I have seen, the greatest schools that I have worked with, it is a community. Parents are working with the teachers. Teachers are working with the leadership. Students are working with teachers, parents, leadership. Instead of it's us versus them, you know, parents on the side. Teachers are thinking it's us versus them against the leadership. I think you raise a really good point, Kimmy, and it's about everybody feeling included in the community because we know that the most important factor in a student's well-being journey is the well-being of the parents. We cannot ignore that fact, but that is so important. So that's where I think schools have the opportunity to be a community of learning where they can provide learning, not just for the students, but for parents and for the teachers, for everybody to continue to learn and grow. It's a little bit tricky when personalities and egos come into play. Even though you have a system, and in many ways, of course, that system is very powerful and very positive. But then when we have ego and personalities come in in any one of those three-pronged attacks, it can upset things, can't it? How do you think that we deal with people's different learning styles, different personalities, different approaches to teaching and parenting? How on earth do we make this a holistic environment when there are so many different factors? (laughs) Oh, Kim, I'm just laughing because straight away I'm thinking of multiple examples where dynamics have really caused some disruption within the system. And it's interesting to note that everybody is doing the best with what they can. Like they're doing the best in that moment. And sometimes when we look at that and think, I cannot believe they're making that choice or why are they doing that? Their ego is just running wild. We need to get curious about what's going on there. What are they trying to protect? What do they fear is going to happen? So maybe a parent that's feeling really intense and outspoken, maybe they're really anxious about what's going to happen for their young person. Maybe they're really worried and they're not sure how to manage it in healthy ways. Uh, Leadership, when things are really falling apart and things are getting wobbly, you know, we say and do and act in ways that we wouldn't ideally like to act in. You know, that is a part of the human nature. And I think if we can get to a point where we can acknowledge, accept and show compassion to each other and remember that we are all on the same team. We are all there for the benefits, the benefit of young people. We are there to educate the future, to create a future, to prepare these young people for life. We're not there to protect them from life. We're there to prepare them from life and something that gets in the way and I see it time and time again in the big-hearted people that I work with, if it's parents, leaders, teachers, and I call them the five Ps. And this is getting into the habit of always feeling like you have to be perfect, 
putting on a show, this perfection myth. The next P is pleasing, feeling like you have to please everybody all the time. The third P is pretending. Everything's fine, no problems here. There are so many dynamics where teachers to other teachers pretend that it's all fine or teachers to parents pretend it's all fine or parents to teachers pretend it's all fine. And the reality is it's not all fine. We need to deal with things earlier when they're just cracks instead of leaving it to later down the track. I always say it's much better to deal with things in term one than term three. You know, we need to move beyond this idea that we have to pretend that it's all perfect. And then the fourth P is performing. Feeling like everyone within the system, within the education community, feel like they have to perform all the time. Parents performing their roles at the gate, teachers performing, leaders performing. This performance is leading to disconnection. We need to remember that we are all human. We all have needs. We are all doing the best we can and nobody has it together every single day. Some days are just really crap and some days are great. And if we can move beyond this idea that we have to perform all the time, we're going to have so much more connection. And the last P that gets us all stuck is this idea that we have to feel like we have to be productive, productive every single moment. So together, all of these P's, perfecting, pleasing, pretending, performing, producing, create a lot of intensity in school systems because everybody is heightened and up instead of leaning into compassion and being just who they are experiencing the ups and downs, knowing that young people have ups and downs and we can walk with them on that journey. We don't need to protect them from life. We need to prepare them for life. I really love the concept of preparing. So in that context, with your knowledge and a master of education and student well-being and understanding psychology How can we prepare our students, our children, to be better students? How can we prepare them as parents to honour the school system but also to know that sometimes it doesn't always fit for them? What can we do as parents to create that preparation for them to actually become educated through this type of system? I love this question because there is so much we can do. And it starts with how we're taking care of ourselves. That's why I love the work that you do, Kim. And I still remember the first ever time that I listened to you on a podcast, up for a chat. It was years and years ago. I remember um, putting in a search bar, well-being, and it was a podcast and I'd never listened to a podcast before and I tapped on it. I think it was the second episode, so I was so lucky. I was a fly in the wall for years And something that it taught me is the most important thing that we can do is take care of ourselves, to be the example. And it gets me so excited to think about, imagine what school systems would be like if parents were living the way that they hope their young people will live in the future. Because we're getting into this really vicious cycle where parents and educators are sacrificing their needs are sacrificing their desires, their wants in order to serve young people. 
And so young people are looking at adults and for the first time, they don't want to be adults. They think that looks horrible. They're always tired. They're always exhausted. They're whinging. They're whining. Why would we want to be that? So the first thing that we can do as big-hearted adults is take care of ourselves, to get to know ourselves, to honour ourselves and be the role model for our young people. And a strategy that I teach, if it's prep students or working in an executive team, is the battery. Everything comes back to the battery. So I'm going to ask your listeners five questions, Kim. The first one is, in the last 24 hours, have you had enough sleep for your body? The next one is, in the last 24 hours, have you moved your body? The third part of the battery, in the last 24 hours, have you nourished your body? And in the last 24 hours, have you had some rest? And finally, in the last 24 hours, have you had some connection? Depending on the answers to those five questions will tell you how you're going to be feeling, functioning and relating today. The battery is vital. So if we want to prepare our young people for life, we need to teach them how to take care of themselves, how to charge their batteries daily so then they've got the energy to live life. Because to live life well, we need to have energy because we know a lot of the things that we do in life that are good for us require energy require us to move through discomfort and so if we can get young people feeling good feeling energetic and hopeful about the future their world literally opens up kim a few years ago i surveyed a whole group of year eight students there was about 250 year eight students and we asked the question who is responsible for your energy and the options were my parents, my teachers, myself, other. 83% of that year eight cohort said my parents because they were so used to their parents telling them when to go to bed, their parents telling them what to do. They hadn't joined the dots that it's up to me. It's my responsibility to do these things. And I'm glad to tell you that by the end of the year, once I've been through my MindFit program, When we surveyed them, who is responsible for your energy, 97% said, I am. And I think that if we can help young people realise what they do makes a difference, help them join the dots. When you sleep well, you feel better. When you move well, you feel better. It's not about how your body looks. It's not about the external. It's not about all of those P's that I've talked about. It's about charging your energy so you can charge your life. It's so beautiful, charging your energy to charge your life. I think in many ways we as adults, parents, could also take all of these lessons into our own world. And I'm sure many people, many adults, they may not spend enough time with the self-care and with being the example. So often I've seen adults wanting the best for their kids but they're not walking that same talk do you think then it's possible for what you're doing not only to go through schools but to then be educated as part of the community that parents get to come along to so you know educational uh, programs like what you're talking about even with your mindfit program is it possible 
or probable that this could be something of the future in your eyes? Yes, and it's happening. A school that I worked with last year, I ran the Thrive by Design program. So that's a program that I do in workplaces because since starting uh, the School of Wellbeing podcast, I've had organizations from all different areas reach out and say, can you work with me? And so I have this Thrive by Design workplace wellbeing program and it's a four-week program to get the foundations of what it is to feel good, function well and relate better. And one school that did this program last year, they said, you know what, our parents have been going through so much at the moment. I'm here in Victoria and they have been in such an intense environment for the last two years. Would we be able to run what you've done with our staff for the parents as an opt-in program? Absolutely. Because if we can support parents, it just opens up so many doors. It opens up this normalizing the struggle, normalizing being human and no one is perfect. Coming back to those P's, I think there are so many parents out there that think that they're doing it wrong, that they're not getting it right instead of realizing that parenting is so hard. You know, there are brutal moments of parenting and if we can create more spaces for parents to connect, share, laugh and learn in authentic ways, I think everybody benefits. Couldn't agree more. What do you say then to the, I mean, I know no one acts up or acts out of control just on a whim. There's always something in behind the behaviour. How do you see the troubled souls, the, the kids that they themselves are struggling or they're, you know, they're wreaking havoc or they're interrupting classes or they're, you know, they're aggressive or they're angry? How on earth do we help those that struggle to learn in all capacities? What do you think is the answer there? Oh, Kim, there has been so much work in this space and I'm so excited about this question and this space of education. And we know so much more now in the way of trauma-informed education and how we can look at this young person and their behaviour as a message, that they are stressed, that things are not working out for them. For some young people, just to sit in a classroom is really hard work. Just to get to school is really hard work. And so being able to be curious and treat them as a human who is stressed And how can we support these young people? You know, there was some research done looking at children who are having really challenging times and looking at their resting heart rate. So, Kim, you would know, what's a general resting heart rate? 60 to 70. Yep, so 60 to 70. In these young people, their resting heart rate is around 120. So that's before the day even starts. So it doesn't take much to spark that response because their system is already so heightened and some of the things that we do at school add to that stress and pressure. So how do we work with young people that are really struggling? We get curious. We start to teach them the signs of stress in their body. We start to connect them to their body because a lot of them have felt so disconnected to their body. We get them to start looking at their heart rate. We get them to start noticing when they're feeling really stressed. 
we get them to start noticing what it's like when we have some calm moments and how we can work through that. So there's so much work in the trauma-informed education space and you bring that together with the wellbeing space and children and young people have the opportunity to come to school and heal, learn and thrive. We can do trauma-informed and wellbeing at the same time it's not an either or because we're all humans doing the best we can with what we've got and when we start to really take that on board magic happens i have worked in schools where it is absolutely educational disneyland there are so many resources there are so many things going on and there are also a lot of issues and the issues manifest in ways that aren't as obvious So the anxiety, the perfectionism, the eating disorders, so many things are happening for them to be able to manage that stress of performing. And then I've also worked in schools where the issues are so big, the behaviours and feelings are so big and we need to be able to manage that. We need to be able to work with that because there is no school where there is no issues. Every school has their issues and if we can work in a way that's going to support our young people, it's going to make everybody's experience better. And the most important thing we can do for young people that are struggling is to build the trust, to build a relationship, to let them know that we see potential in them and that we trust them, that they are doing the best they can. I have seen students absolutely turn around once they've seen an adult believe in them and develop that relationship and have that unconditional positive regard. Regardless of their behaviour, they as a human are okay and worthy and lovable. I think many times I've heard the situation where a teacher has made someone's life. They have really helped them to elevate themselves out of their poverty or their circumstance or their experiences, and they have really been the link to someone rising above their adversity. I've also known of teachers to cripple someone with their behaviour, and I'm wondering if you've noticed through this time that the teachers that aren't coping themselves, perhaps they too need to go through processes of understanding that they themselves can cripple these children's hearts, minds and souls. Is there support for them or is it just time to hang up, I was going to say the boots or put the chalk down or put the laptop, I don't know, whatever it is, is it time for them to retire when they're feeling like that with kids? I think that's a really interesting point. Because I know there are a lot of teachers at the moment questioning, can I keep going? The intensity, COVID has, you know, a lot of teachers are already feeling the pressure, feeling exhausted, fatigued before COVID even hit. And so now there are a whole cohort of teachers that are really questioning, is this for me? And a part of me gets really sad about that because I think it could be for you. If things are done differently, and I talk about the wellbeing trifecta, there are three pillars that every individual needs to really take the next step and to continue to take the next steps on the wellbeing journey. The first pillar is skills. So we need to have the skills. We need to have the strategies. 
And a lot of teachers, a lot of people listening, they've got the skills. They know they need to go to bed. They need to move. They need to eat pretty good food. They know they need to rest. So they've got some skills. But the part that people don't think about in a trifecta, the two other elements, the second one is strategy. You need to have a plan. So if a teacher's feeling exhausted and when we're exhausted, we get a little bit bitter, we get a bit resentful and our attention and patience is not so good. So what is your strategy? What is your action plan? If you don't want to feel like this anymore, what choices can you make? And the stumbling block here in the strategy part is a lot of educators think, well, it's up to the school to change. It's up to the system to change. The system needs to support me. And yes, that would be great and it's probably not going to happen. So what can you do within your power to create a plan, to create a strategy? So that's why I love to do the work that I do. I've got my Energy by Design program just for educators that I run each term. And these are the educators that have gone out of their way to join me for a program and they've got a strategy. They've got a plan. And just by having a strategy and a plan, they feel so much better. They've gone from feeling like this is impossible, it's all out of my control, to I've got agency here. I've got autonomy. I can do things. And I'm sure you've seen that in your programs, Kim, where that light bulb moment of, okay, things are tough and I'm going to create an action plan. And the third part in a trifecta and the most critical part is having support, having community, having people that are supportive of your changes and supportive of your growth. And the challenge in school systems and for a lot of teachers is there are not people there to support you. There are teachers that you've worked with for years and years and years, but deep down they probably don't want to see you thriving and having energy. It's almost frowned upon to be like, oh, lucky you've got the energy. Lucky you can go for a walk and you've got the time to do this. It's because we're so immersed in this environment of sacrifice and no time for me. The good teacher is always available. The good teacher is always performing and doing all the P's. And to start to take care of yourself in new and meaningful ways is counterculture and it's disruptive. And so for teachers to really think about Where's their skills, where's their strategy, and where is their support? And the support may not come from your staff room. It may come from connecting with other teachers in other schools that are wanting a different way. And eventually, my deepest hope is that teachers who are energised, who are do have clarity and confidence, can go out and create that ripple effect day by day by day. My vision is to build a community of energized educators that can go out there and have that positive effect that you're talking about because teachers do change lives. Kim, I think of myself. I remember when I was in year one, I was a young girl that loved to read. Mum used to take me to the library all the time and a part of my schools when I was playing schools when I was younger, I used to have a library and in my library I used to have the little numbers on the back, I'd put little sticky numbers on the back with my little dinosaur stamp and the little card at the back for anyone who would borrow it. Books were my absolute love and passion. And when I was in year one, I remember doing some work 
and a teacher leaning over my shoulder. And this may not have been what she said, but what I remember in that moment is you're dumb and you'll never be able to read. That's what I remember her saying. And from then, I did not finish a book since all through my schooling. So all of my English classes, I never really finished a book. I spent more time looking for summaries and cheat seats and actually reading a book because I was so impacted by that teacher that I felt that just didn't have any belief in me, that thought that I was dumb and I was stupid and I'd never be able to read. And I took that on. And I remember my mum saying, you can read, you can do all these things and trying so hard and getting me all the different books. But for some reason, that voice that time, it just stuck with me. And it's years later now that I've reclaimed my love of books and my love of learning. And I'm surrounded by books all the time. They give me so much joy. And I think, wow, imagine what my schooling would have been like if I continued to love to read. And so that's why we need to have energy because our words really matter. Our behavior matters. And our young people are so impressionable. So if we're not having a good time, chances are we're rubbing off on our students. We talk about the emotional contagion and we are very contagious. We, talk, we, we know about contagion now because of COVID, but there's an emotional contagion that's very strong in school systems and currently our young people are marinating in stress, overwhelm, pressure and uncertainty. How on earth do we bring back a sense of that then? Because let's go here with COVID. Obviously, with the choices around being able to even teach, even if you are a highly energised teacher with huge passion, energy and desire to make a difference, through your own health choices have now been told you've lost your job. Now, how is this impacting the system and how on earth is this going to impact our future? It's a really interesting question because as far as, because I get this question all the time, how is this impacting our young people? And from what I have seen, and so this is just experience, I haven't um, got good research on this at the moment, is the experience for the young person very much depends on the experience in their home. So if their parents have managed to get through have felt like, okay, this is not ideal and we'll just keep chipping along. Kids are going to feel like that's the way that it is. Like young people are very much influenced by the adults around them, how the adults are feeling around them. And so for young people where the adults have been able to manage, been able to get through, that feels pretty good to them. For other young people, the amount of stress and pressure that's going to create a real ripple in their system potentially for the rest of their life. And then looking at a developmental point of view, our youngest people do really well being at home. They do really well being in that nest of relationships and security. That's how young people are designed. However, our adolescents are not designed to be in small spaces with adults. They're designed to fly they're designed to be out in the world doing so many different things and so for a lot of our adolescents one of my dear friends and colleagues Dr Vanessa Lapointe she said recently for our 
lots of our adolescents, their wings have been clipped during this period. So there's going to be some rapid catching up. So that could be some really interesting behaviours. So we, it's this dance of it's happened, it is here, and what can we do moving forward considering the reality? I've known of groups of teachers who haven't been able to go back into the teaching environment they're getting together now to support parents with homeschooling, which seems to be a beautiful um, answer for a lot of them. Let me ask you then about homeschooling. You know Cindy O'Meara very well as from listening to Up for a Chat and all the other things you've seen her in. One of the things she did was took all her children out of school for two whole years and her and her husband Howard travelled around Australia in a bus and homeschooled. What do you think is the benefits and is there any downsides to homeschooling? Oh, I have such a smile on my face because I remember Cindy talking about taking her family away on a trip and I have visions of taking my family away on a trip. But then I spend a lot of time with my young boys who are currently four and two and think I'm not sure if I'd be up for that. (laughs) right at this stage of development and so I think when it comes to homeschooling it's definitely not my expertise but we need to think about is it going to work for the parents because if it's not going to work for the parents it's not going to work for the young people because if the parents are feeling like okay I've got to do this I've got to do all the P's now I've got to perfect it got to perform you know produce got to do all these things that could put a lot of pressure on the family system financially is it possible for an adult to stay home and do that you know it that is why you know the school system as challenging it as it is it does provide that space so people can work and do other things so there's a lot to think about when we make choices for our young people if it's daycare or not if it's school or not home learning or not homeschooling or not we need to really think about is it possible? Can we do it in a way that serves everybody within the system? If it just if it ends up being the best decision for you as a family, I think it's great. But if it's a decision that you're making and it's going to be at the detriment to the adults' health and happiness and their own desires and dreams, I'm not sure if it would be a good choice. So I think every family is in a different position and every parent is in a different position. There are lots of parents here in Victoria that after the first lockdown, they thought, yes, I'm going to homeschool. I absolutely nailed it. I, oh, Gosh, I, I'm going to be a teacher. Like, this is great. And then after the second big lockdown, they thought, no, I've used all my best. I'm exhausted. I really want to get back to work and I really want to do other things that are meaningful in my life. So I think it really depends on the family system and how it could work for them or potentially not work for them. I think you make a really good point here that we parents have a lot more influence than we could ever imagine. A happy home creates a happy upbringing. So many adults are not trained in relationships. If we're not taught all of this at school, it's just a perpetual cycle of doing the best we can with what we've got or what we haven't got. Personal growth, personal development, reading, enlightening, getting curious, understanding relationships, 
talking about personalities and dynamics, looking at how we can be the best around disciplining, how we are and how we show up when we are exhausted. What do we tell our kids? What don't we tell our kids? How much do they get involved in? What don't they get involved in? I mean, it is, it is not an easy pathway being a parent, and therefore I can't imagine it being easy as a teacher. So you personally, Meg, with this being such a passion of yours around well-being and growing and valuing happy, beautiful students into humanly, insanely lovable adults who are doing the best that they can, what then, in your opinion, thinking of knowing that this is a self-love podcast, how would you describe self-love from your point of view? And do you think then as a full circle that self-love is one of the key factors for all of us, whether we're leaders, teachers, students, or parents? Oh, self-love to me, it is a process. It's a process of getting to know yourself, to accept yourself, who you were, who you are, who you're becoming and appreciating yourself, the beautiful, complex, nuanced human that you are, that you have strength and struggle. And I think that's what deep love is, acknowledging the wholeness, that it's not about being perfect. It's not about feeling like you're on top of it all the time. Your love is not determined by what you produce or what you get done on your to-do list. You are lovable as you are and I think for a lot of adults it's a really hard thing to work towards because it starts with liking yourself I sometimes joke with the people that I work with that it's just like any relationship you need to have flirt like oh, I wonder what they're like get curious get to know yourself what do you like what don't you like and then building this commitment a commitment to honor yourself to care for yourself, to listen to those whispers if you want to be healthier, if you want to be happier, if you want to study again, like start to listen to those whispers and honour those whispers because that is an act of self-love and those acts just keep evolving and changing as our life continues to evolve and change. And do I think it's important for everybody in the system? Absolutely. And like most things in this well-being space, it sounds easy. You know, regard yourself, respect yourself, take care of yourself. It sounds so easy and yet, as you and I both know, Kim, it is really hard. It is really complex when you have been marinating in a system, in a community and a culture that to love yourself is arrogant or you're full of yourself and we have to really move beyond that and honour the beautiful souls that which we are. So beautifully answered. I really love that so, so much. I want to go forward now into understanding technology in this day and age. For me at school, if we stuffed up or if a boy kissed a girl that shouldn't have or if someone was smoking behind the sheds or if anything went down, we never had the photographic evidence or videos or, you know, phones and all of this. Is social media creating more havoc in your opinion? Is there a good side to social media? How do we manage that in the school system? Oh, it's such a big topic. It's such a big topic for all of us. I know people who are quite attached to the digital from school age to like older adults. No one's immune to this pool for technology 
And there are parts of it that are beautiful. There are parts of it where young people are engaging with young people that may have the same interests as them. They may have the same sexual orientation as them. They may have the same disability as them. Like there's this beautiful openness and just seeing different people in the world because one of the downsides in my generation and other generations is you only saw what you saw. You didn't know that there are other people out there that were interested in what you were interested in. You didn't know that there was such a thing and there are people all around the world that love it and you can run with it. However, there's also the challenges in that this comparison. You're not just comparing yourself to the people in your year level now. You're comparing yourself to people your age all over the world. And we know that if you can't understand comparison and you can't navigate those really complex topics and don't have adults around you that can support you in this process, that can be quite debilitating for people and feed into this story that I'm not enough, that I have to do things to fit in. You know, Brene Brown always talks about the difference between fitting in and belonging. You know, a lot of our young people are in the habit of fitting in and fitting in is where you feel like you have to change something in order to fit in. So you have to buy the certain clothes or wear the certain shoes or do the certain hairstyle. Where belonging is, you belong. You don't have to change things. You don't have to manipulate the way that you look. You just belong. So technology has some real strength for our young people And there's also some real challenges. And so it's not particularly the technology. It's about why, when, and how they're using it. If that's the case, and it's around the why, when, and how, how on earth does a busy mum or dad who's working full on stop their kids, especially teenagers, from checking in on how much time? It's addictive. It is this is a very tough thing to manage in even saying why, when, and how. Uh, you know, I remember with Jacob when he was at high school, he felt that PlayStation was a way to connect and to be a part of a, a certain group. But when I heard the language that came from that room and when I heard and saw how aggressive he got and then how addicted he was and how he was, his behaviour completely changed to the point where we actually, I had to throw I. I was hated for a long time, but actually threw the PlayStation away. He, I, I couldn't do it anymore. But he later thanked me for that, but it took a long time, I'll add. But how on earth do we monitor that when we ourselves are so damn busy? It is such a challenge, and I honestly think it's a challenge of our time. The way that we engage in the digital world is such a challenge And the challenge is greater when we are exhausted, when we are depleted, because you think, for goodness sakes, just go, just watch telly or go on the iPad or just do something, like just do something. So in that moment, it's giving us some relief. It's giving everybody some relief. However, the long-term effects can be quite detrimental. So it is such a challenge because technology in the moment makes us feel so good. Like it feels good in the moment, but it's afterwards you think, oh, that's not so good. So it's kind of like sugar. We always feel that urge to move towards sugar because it gives you this sort of buzz, this temporary feeling, but you're going to drop afterwards. And so it is 
just so complex. And I get really curious within family systems to start to notice out of all the technology, what is a real trigger for you or what is a real trigger for your young person? For you, it might be your emails. You know, for people listening, teachers, parents, big-hearted people, working professionals, it might be their emails. And so you may catch yourself in the pantry checking through your emails or when you're meant to be putting out the laundry, you're checking through your emails. And then your young person, it might be TikTok. They said they're just going to do 10 minutes and then the next thing, 10 minutes is up and then there's another 10 minutes. And we have to realize that there are very, very smart people working really, really hard to gain our attention. You know, it's an attention economy. So we're working against this massive powerhouse to gain our attention. So in order to reclaim our attention, we've got to start back to that battery, back to the basics, being that role model that we're not having phones in bed, we're not coming home on the phones and just doing the best we can with what we've got and starting to help our young people just notice Oh, what do you feel like after you've got off that PlayStation? Or what are you thinking and feeling? I know our four-year-old, if he ever watches anything on an um, like a phone screen, so just a small screen or an iPad screen, his behavior afterwards, it's just next level. Like it is, it just changes him. And so we've had to go with no small phones, no iPads. He can watch TV, but he can't. He just cannot tolerate it because his behavior afterwards is just so big. And so starting to notice what can your children tolerate and what can't they? And thinking honestly about yourself, is your screen time or is your phone use problematic? Is it taking you away from the sleep, movement, nourishment, rest and connection? Because technology is technology and the challenges that we face with technology are so great but one of the challenges is that it takes us away from meaningful connection it takes us away from what we need to do and so it's becoming mindful it's becoming aware noticing patterns and then slowly making courageous changes it is courageous and I think you're absolutely right the more you draw the line in the sand for you as a family, the more everybody in the family will feel the harmony around that because no matter what your rules are, if you stick to it and you make it a pact for all of you, it becomes way easier for our children to watch by what we do, not what we say. So I think that's a really good point. And you've brought up a really good point also for all of us that do work with technology. What is our triggers? Where do we go with this? I am a master at spending a hell of a lot of time on my computer. And so I have learned to create rituals that create the break, get me outside, earthing, sunlight, movement. I cannot stop my morning routine knowing I've got a day on the computer or I'm working with clients on Zoom. So I think it's a really good point for all of us. I want to, I know there's so many questions I want to ask you around school, just things like, just very quickly off, you know, my, my husband was strapped at school, or I think he even said he got the cane. Do you think that form of punishment ever had a place? Or do you think something that form, uh, sorry, that firm and brutal is, uh, it's probably a very incorrectly uh, incorrect political question to ask you but was there ever a place for that form of punishment in your opinion as a teacher 
really interesting because when you look back at that period of time, it was very acceptable to hit children, to smack children. It was the norm. And so it sort of was a norm. It was happening at school. It was a norm. And we've learned now that it's not helpful, that it's actually really corrosive to relationships. And relationships are the foundation of learning. If you believe that someone likes you and cares about you, you will move heaven and earth to them. And so physical punishment is not the answer. Treating people like humans is the answer. But the challenge here, Kim, and it's quite complex, so I'll try to explain it in a way that makes sense, is for us as adults, when young people are behaving in ways that just make us scratch our heads, for a lot of us, that brings up a lot of anxiety in us because we're thinking, what have we done wrong? Should we move them to a different school? I've said the wrong thing. And this cycle of anxiety is really quite toxic and corrosive in relationships. So the child's anxious, the parent's anxious, the teacher's anxious, everyone's really anxious and in this soup of fear and unknown. And sometimes for some people, when they get really elevated, they go to this place of just shut it down. You know, they go into this really firm place, you know, almost go into this bully mean mode of the behavior is just too much. I just need to shut this down. And we've all been there at this moment, like this just has got to stop. And there's also some of us that when things get really, really hard, we just fall apart. We just just don't know what to do. We just please our way out of it. We just fall apart. Just do whatever you want. I just, I just can't bear the confrontation. And so what we know from research is to get the best out of young people, regardless if you're the parent or the teacher or the sports coach, however, it is having that firmness where there is boundaries, but also that kindness that you are human. And so behavior is one part. And the human is another part. And the human is always lovable and worthy. It's the behavior that's the challenging part and how we can address the behavior without disrupting the relationship. And that is a real art. And that's a skill that takes practice and education to develop. One thing a beautiful friend of mine always said, and I've used it with my children when they were growing up, at some point, you know, I lost my chisel or I wasn't great or I certainly was not feeling proud of my behaviour. I remember Jacob turning around at one point saying, oh, if they could all see you now. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is, this is that they're a mirror of our own internal angst. But I had a girlfriend who said, and she reminded me, and I turned around and used it with my children one day, I've never been a 45-year-old woman with a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old. I've never known what it's like to parent two children at this age going through their own times and us with financial pressures and dad away and all of these things. So I'm going to have to ask for your forgiveness, your tolerance and your patience. But I also know you've never been a 15-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy with a dad away a lot and a mum and dad under pressure and all of this. That conversation that became the pivotal opening for us as a family to realize we're not just always the authority and the ones that have to have it right, like you say. And I think sometimes those open-hearted conversations can become 
a real way. I'm not saying it always works, but certainly it helped us to break down that barrier of me having to to get it right or to be judged by two teens that are at you. So I just wanted to share that. And do you think then from your point of view, you know, that openness and vulnerability, which beautiful Brené Brown does talk a lot about, is also key in all of this? Kim, that story is just beautiful and it is so key and it highlights what can happen when we are authentic. We're not trying to pretend that we're the parent that has it all together, the teacher that has it all together. We are just human. We are showing up. We're doing the best we can. I remember a student that I was working with. She was in year eight. She had a lot of things that we were working on. It felt like she was in my office every single day. And it was in my early in my teaching career. So I was just starting to learn all these different things. So I was trying these different strategies. And I remember one day walking down the hall and I heard her talking to one of her school friends, one of her good friends. And she said, oh, watch out for her. She was talking about me. You know, miss, she looks really nice, but she's a B-I-T-C-H. And I just stopped in my tracks and thought, I am working with this student day in and day out, you know, and that's how she thinks of me. And I remember the next conversation, I sat down with her and I just said to her, you know, all of this work that we're putting in, it's hard for me too. It's hard for me to constantly having to have these conversations with you. It would be so much easier if I just didn't have them. Like my time would be freed up, your time would be freed up. It would be easier. And yet it wouldn't be helpful for you because I am here to see the best in you. I am here to help you move through this struggle, the struggle that you're going through and get through this and be proud of yourself and know that you can make a difference. Know that you've got autonomy, that you can make changes. Like I am here for you. I am here cheering you on. It would be so much easier just to let things slide. And the look in her eyes, Kim, was just, ah. It makes my heart just beat faster thinking about it now, that look of, so you're not just trying to be a bitch, you actually care, you are doing this for a reason and it just transformed our relationship for the rest of the year. It didn't mean that things went perfectly but it meant that she trusted me and that she knew that I was on her side. I just love it. It really, it really matters to young people. I also think a lot of teachers forget and parents forget that these beautiful young people will one day be adults themselves and it happens before you even sometimes, in my opinion, feels like you click your fingers and they're there. And I think sometimes talking down to them and having this um, parent-child relationship um, from a, you know, from a, I think if we can talk adult to adult, and I mean that as an, like an adult meaningful conversation and treating them as the adult they're becoming, gives us so much more power and both our stories I think really highlight the power in these young people really understanding their issues as they're growing, their personalities, their differences and 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 maybe their struggles. So I think it's a really powerful thing when all of us are on board in the same way. I know there's so many more questions, but there's one that's been burning on my mind I wanted to ask you, sweetheart, was 
male teachers, it's it seems to be, and I may have it wrong, is that figure dropping and is the pay enough to invite men and women to continue in the teaching realm regardless of COVID? Do you think that there's a calling for more men out there? Because they're not just teachers, they're also role models, aren't they? Oh, male teachers they have such an impact in school communities and I don't know what the latest numbers are when it comes to uh, the ratio of male to female teachers but from my lived experience and walking into schools there is a the minority are male teachers and I think there are barriers to education for male teachers because it's a predominantly um, woman-dominated environment and so that real stereotypical role that that's woman's work, you know, and it's just so unhelpful. And when it comes to pay, yes, you get paid and then you get to a certain level and that's it. So it doesn't matter how experienced you are, what you've done, what qualifications you've done, you get paid the same. I remember when I was working full time and I studied my master's, which was a two-year intensive program, that didn't impact my pay. There was no leave for it. I had to do it all in my weekends. It's a really interesting model because everybody at the same stage gets paid the same until you get to a level and then that's it. There's no other changes. So that could be one barrier to people. I think another barrier to education is just it is so hard. Like it is such hard work and I hope with the pandemic and the lockdowns that people are starting to get an idea of just how intense it is to be working in rooms and having the responsibility of all of these young minds. It is such an intense responsibility and there's not a whole heap of support. And that's why I'm so excited now that more schools are doing more and more work in the teacher wellbeing space and the parent wellbeing space because it is hard work and in the literature they talk about emotional labour. It's a very high emotional labour and so that could prevent males and females coming in to the profession because I think that would just be too hard. The amount of people that I've spoken with who are not teachers and say, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a teacher, I work with teachers. <gasps> you couldn't pay me enough to be in a classroom. Like that would be so hard. So the amount of work and then once people, if they do get into the profession, we know that within the first five years a lot of people don't continue just because there's not as much support. There's not as much regard and value for the teacher in years gone by. It was such a highly respected role and now there are so many challenges at so many levels that make it really hard to continue in the profession. So I would love to see more males in the profession because I have worked with some incredible male educators and the role modelling that they can have in people's lives is just so powerful. Imagine what the world would be like if there was no such thing as men's work and women's work. It was just doing work that lit you up. It didn't matter what gender you were. And it just lit you up. If someone feels drawn to care for other people, to educate the future, that that is an option. You know, that's a challenge that we have with our system is once students get a certain mark, a, student, a certain number at the end of the year, they think, well, I better do the course with that number. 
instead of thinking, well, I may have this number, but what am I interested in? What am I yearning for? And there are so many people that have done this tick box life where they've gone to school, they've gone to uni, they've got the mark so that, you know, that's the uni course they did. Then they get into the profession and think, I don't even want to do this. I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a teacher. And then to answer that calling. So, yeah, I just, I'd be so excited to see more men in the profession. It is a good profession. There is so much joy in it to work with young people, to see them grow and thrive, to laugh with your colleagues. When you have leadership that believe in you and allow you to do the things that you want to do, there is so much magic there. So I've got hope that more males will come into the profession and I have hope that in a wider perspective we support our teachers more so they can do what they need to do and that's educate young people. I love it too. I have many male teachers that I still remember very fondly and feel very um, love the fact that I had a privileged upbringing really where I had quite a lot of male and female teachers. So, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Now, there is one other little question I have to ask you on behalf of all parents out there. What is the point of homework? Now, I understand that there's a curriculum to get through and I understand that there's heaps that must be done. But I always remember parents going, why can't they get through this in the classroom? So is there another outside reason other than having to just get more work done? What is the point of homework? Oh, I love this question and it's not a specialty of mine, but I'm curious about this topic because it takes me back to like, what is learning? Is it just a matter of putting in more stuff, recalling more things, that, that regurgitation, just, you know, learn it for the test? or is it learning for life? And so I think there is so much to learn from life, to be out in life, to be doing things in life and not always just sitting and reading. So there are challenges when it comes to homework and every school's different the way that they manage homework. But if it's just hour upon hour of just more and more questions and more and more, I'm not sure if that's going to service all children and all families. So there is some tension there and I think there is a question to be asked that why? What are we working on? What are we hoping to achieve? Can we meet this requirement of learning through another way? You know, I love it when schools have children making dinners for their parents and doing engaged activities. It's That to me is much more meaningful to have the responsibility of working through a grocery list and doing finances and preparing meals and helping with laundry and learning and doing like there's so much we can experience in the way that we learn and it doesn't mean that we have to be sitting down doing traditional homework so I think there's this is a space that's quite contentious at the moment and I think more and more people are questioning the value of the traditional homework love it thank you so much I'm just glad I don't have children in school anymore. Um, it's it's such a big challenge on, on many levels and all of these things. And I really, I just want to appreciate your time and everything and all your knowledge and education and your beautiful podcast and all the things that you're doing in the community. Knowing that this beautiful self-love podcast listener is an exceptional soul and there's someone who is curious, there's someone who does go after looking for the bigger meaning and behind the everyday norm. What would be your final message to the self-love podcast listener and 
could you finish with your favourite quote? My final message is keep listening to the whispers. Your body knows, your heart knows what it's yearning for, what it wants, and it's up to us to listen to those whispers, to take courageous action on our own behalf and to do that over and over and over again. I think greatness requires consistency and I think consistency requires courage. So listen to the whispers and keep showing up for yourself And my favourite quote and the quote that comes to mind every day is, if it's to be, it's up to me. And a part of that quote, it's not saying that it's only you. It's saying that if it's to be, it's up to me. So if you need help, it's up to you to seek it. If you need to go to bed earlier, it's up to you to do it. If you need to have that difficult conversation, it is up to you. So if it's to be, it's up to me. Beautiful, Meg. You are an amazing soul. We do appreciate your time and the input you're doing in way bigger ways than we could ever imagine, particularly in the schooling and education system. If we wanted to find out more about all your beautiful courses, programs, if there's teachers listening or people who know teachers, if there's parents who want to know more, particularly around the well-being, where could we find you and what social media platforms can we find you at too? Well, thank you so much for that, Kim. So the best place to find me is openmindeducation.com. That is my website and that's my business. And I love to be on Instagram. So come and follow me on Instagram at Meg Durham. And if you're a teacher or an educator, I'm very active on LinkedIn and have some groups there. Meg Durham, thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast. All the best, sweetheart, and thank you for the work you do for our beautiful future generation. Thank you, Kim, for having me. It's an absolute honour to talk with you and share with your audience. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.